Chronologically, it appears Jesus heads home to Capernaum after the Feast of Booths for a couple months of ministry before returning to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, or what today is called Hanukkah. The opposition is growing and is scheming against him. So what will Jesus do? Hide and take cover? No. Wage war against his enemies? No. Amplify the kingdom message? Absolutely. He's going to turn it up to 70. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will send out the 70. Jesus has been up north again, making his final appeal to the people of Galilee. And we're going to return to Luke's authorized official story of Jesus in Luke chapter 9 starting in verses 51 to 54. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So James and John here are a couple firecrackers, literally asking if they should be like Elijah and call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans. Maybe this is why they're known as the sons of thunder. Jesus doesn't want the Samaritans dead, though. He loves them. There's no culture war here. They aren't especially crazy about him on this day because he's being so Jewish. His face is set on Jerusalem and going there for Hanukkah when the Samaritans don't go there for anything. He rebukes the boys and then he just keeps walking to a more welcoming village. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus, are you still cool? Why so serious? He doesn't have much time. He is being extra direct. Remember the whole take up your cross thing? It's real. Bring the kingdom to people here. 
is a chore. And yes, it's a joy too, but it does take perseverance. And if you aren't committed, you'll give up. Just a little side commentary here. I hear a lot of church folks slinging this at people who have deconstructed some of the traditions of the church. Like, you weren't a true believer. Not always the case. Sometimes the commitment to Christ will have you taking up a cross and walking painfully right out of a church family. If we get sidetracked, we'll lose the kingdom focus and the centricity of Jesus. If you live in 2022, then you might only have church experiences that are always sidetracked from the kingdom. Whether it's politics or celebrity or numbers or dogmas, we get sidetracked. And that's what Jesus is warning here. Following him takes commitment and anything less and you'll be running home. These folks are a lot like us, sidetracked. You don't have to go bury your father because this is more important. You don't have to go announce your goodbyes. This is more important. Don't look back like anything else you were doing is more important. The guy's father isn't likely dead or he would be busy burying him, which was the greatest honor and obligation of a son. The man is asking for a delay until his father does pass and so he can honor his father. Still, Jesus is shocking with the refusal. And the oxen thing? Talk about raising the stakes. When Elijah called Elisha, he was at an oxen plow and he asked for a delay so he could say goodbye to his family. But Jesus isn't willing. Is there something wrong with him? No, it's just the kingdom work is a greater calling than even a prophet. So are we ready? Can we trust and follow? What if I'm not ready? Is Jesus done with me? No, he is just acknowledging with you that you're not ready. You have some insecurity about it or some priority that needs adjusted. Your faith isn't in him fully. What if one of those reluctant followers said, I want to, I just don't know how. I'm sure his answer would be different, but these folks have excuses. I have excuses. You may have excuses. And Jesus agrees that they are excuses. We'll return to our insecurities and bad priorities without focus on him. I've been a pastor and I've been a Christian educator and I can say with confidence that I'm unconfident I have much of my lifetime that counts as following earnestly without distraction. I confess this to him often and I plead for help with it. I envy Peter who can just leave everything. Even Elisha that can leave the wealth of 12 oxen for a sackcloth just after a delayed party. I have excuses, but Jesus doesn't say that these people are cut out of the kingdom like he did the Pharisees. He doesn't speak of Gehenna or permadeath. Belief is an issue for that. This is the committed follow. This is discipleship. And Jesus says he has no home, no 
place for his head to rest. So following him isn't the easy path. It's not full of cushions and things of that nature. The work of love and grace and justice and peace is gritty. The Friends of Rich Mullins just put out a new album. They took Rich's uh, rough cuts from his final recorded tape and they gathered his friends to make a new 18-song album called Bellsburg. After the name of the city Rich's old home was in and where they recorded. They advertised that Amy Grant, Mitch McVickers, Cindy Morgan, and people like that are on it. But my favorite track so far is Rich's interpretation of this passage, and it's covered on the album by Kevin Max, formerly of DC Talk. I'll put a link to the album website in the show notes. The bridge goes like this. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the hope of the world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. You had the shoulders of a homeless man, and the world can't stand what it can't own, and it can't own you because you did not have a home. And that's also why we fear following Jesus. What if the journey takes us there as well? We have to sit uncomfortably with that and ask ourselves, are we willing? And if we're not willing, what is that? Now, many scholars think we should jump to Luke 17 real fast and then go back to chapter 10. Why? Well, Luke was writing an orderly account, but it may have been more liturgical than historical. This next passage happens on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus has very few of those journeys left, especially stories facing Jerusalem, but near enough Samaria for this story to work. And I don't see Jesus in this area again, making it difficult not to chronologically place the story here. So this is from Luke 17, verses 13 and 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. One out of nine returns and worships Jesus, falling at his feet and praising him as God. We don't know if they're all Samaritans, but it seems like Jesus is identifying this man as different than the others, calling him the foreigner. The Samaritan is the one who worships him. Jesus shows mercy even when it will be abused. Jesus knows nine of these ten men will abuse the mercy given and not respond properly to his love. He knows, but he still shows mercy. When we see someone in need, how many times do we withhold mercy because of what we imagine they might do? Jesus would have us do it anyway, even if you knew 
what you don't know. Now we can go back to Luke 10, which starts with after this. And Luke intends us to be thinking about after Jesus said he doesn't have a home. Luke 10, 1-13 After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust on your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. Yes, these are almost the exact same words Jesus used when he sent out just the 12 apostles for ministry. And they're followed by the exact same words he spoke to the cities of Chorazin and Capernaum before condemning their lack of faith. I didn't repeat those as well because he might have said the exact same thing again or it could have been copied twice. This time he chooses 70 to 72 others to go two by two into the villages along the way to Judea. The discrepancies in the number 70 or 72 come from the differences found in approximately half of the ancient scrolls used in translation. The texts are nearly evenly divided between 70 and 72, and scholars do not agree on whether the number should be 70 or 72, although such a minor issue is really no cause for debate, since the number 70 is repeated in other places in scripture, it may be more likely that the actual number is 70, with the two being a copyist error, thinking of them going two by two. Whether there were 70 or 72 disciples is irrelevant. What is important are the instructions that Jesus gave them and the power that came upon them to perform miracles and cast out demons. What's interesting to me is that Moses appoints 70 elders to help him in Numbers 11, and Jesus selects a similar number of folks to help his mission. His arrest is about a half a year away. And that might sound like a long time, but it can go by quickly. So these 72 or 70 are to go out and prepare towns and villages for Jesus's imminent coming and quick visit. Luke 10, 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, 
but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Sounds a lot like what he said after the twelve returned. But Jesus is super excited for them too. You can almost see him laughing here. They are doing a great work. But he refocuses them from their newfound powers that are through God to the fact that they are adopted and their names are scribed for life. Our joy shouldn't be in what we can do for Jesus, but that our names are written in heaven. Is that a joy for you? We may see miracles and healings done at our hands because of Jesus' name and authority, but our joy should come from being written in that book because of his love. Jesus is thrilled with these followers of him, many of whom are average Joes and Jills, uneducated, lesser men and women, but they have been chosen and they have been faithful to the call. Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who is the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Again, this is very similar to what Jesus celebrated with the twelve. He is giving these 70 to 72 disciples primo treatment, full attention and celebration. He tells them privately that what they are seeing is what the world has looked forward to for ages. Moses looked forward to it. Elijah foreshadowed it. David was promised it. Isaiah prophesied about it. And now the disciples are the living, breathing kingdom ambassadors on earth. And you guys, that's not over. We can still be a part of that. We just forgot. Jesus wants them to take note of the moment, to note the justice, the peace, the healing, the restoration, and the hope that the mission is bringing. The kingdom is breaking through. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. We must have faith to be saved. We must have commitment to be disciples. You can be saved and not be a disciple, but why? Many of us will go back and forth through life. Due to ourselves and our circumstances, we'll take breaks, we'll go backwards, we'll go forwards, we'll trust Jesus when we focus, and we'll follow him. It is what we want to do. Can we pray that Jesus takes everything that's in the way that holds us back? Hear me, this isn't Platt's book, Radical. You don't have to be homeless to be Jesus' disciple, but someone might. I used to tell my students this, but only you can follow Jesus like you. Only you can follow the Spirit to Jesus like you. There's not a cookie-cutter discipleship. There is following. Messy, gritty following. 
I used to pressure myself to surrender all. And at that time, I tied this directly to even my own salvation. I thirsted for spiritual highs and surrender is part of this scenario, but there isn't pressure. Most of Jesus' disciples chose to follow him rather than were obligated to do so. This was actually the style of rabbinic discipleship at the time. Typically, pupils chose the teacher. When you're ready, go. Thank you for listening. Anakonosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will be in Jericho.